This is week four of Jonah. And as we said last week, come back. We have an exciting conclusion to this story. Delighted to see everyone. Let's open in prayer. Father God, you reveal yourself to us through your word, through nature, and yet we know that there are many mysteries that are unknown to us and will be unknown to us until that time that you make all things clear. Today is fall, is on us, we see leaves falling from branches. We also are excited this time of year as we harvest great fruit, great crops from branches that have been so faithful in their service to you. And yet, you remind us, Father, that we are the branches and you are the vine. Help us always be mindful of that. And even as we study today, help us understand that we are here to receive your word and only through you and your Holy Spirit might we be good branches, bear good fruit, whatever the season. And we ask this also for our teacher today, that he makes things clear to us, opens our minds to understanding. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. All right, so uh, before we conclude uh, with chapter four, I'd like to just quickly summarize what we've been doing, Uh, especially just give you, you know, let's let's go over the first three chapters uh, uh, just to set the stage for what's happening in chapter four. So in chapter one, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up, kum, lech, go, to Nineveh, the great city. That's where we first learned this word, gadol. Do you remember this word? Gadol. Gadol means great, big. So it's a big city, Gadol city. So Jonah gets up, because God said, get up and go. So Jonah gets up to flee. Do you remember that? It was a setup. It was a humorous setup. He gets up, but he flees. Uh, He goes to Joppa, goes down into the ship, trying to flee to Tarshish. Now, scholars have no idea where Tarshish really is. Uh, their guesses. Maybe it's Tarsus. Could be. But it's out in the ocean. Joppa is on the, the coast. Nineveh is east. So he's going west. He gets on a ship. He goes down. He keeps going down. <clears throat> and because of that, God throws, hurls a great gadol, great wind, which causes a great storm. So long story short, Jonah gets... Uh, called out by the casting of lots. The men fear a great fear. That's Godol again. That was this this word. Keep happening over and over. Don't really know why. So men fear a great fear. By the way, I like that in in English we have the word fear as a verb and a noun. So we can say that men feared a great fear. Now we can't always do that in English. Hebrew can do it almost every time. Hebrew has one word uh, like three consonants that can be turned into a verb or a noun. For example, davar. Davar in Hebrew means word. Diver, same letters, different vowels, means to speak. So you can speak words. In, in English, we can't word words. But you can fear fear. <coughs> the only thing to fear is fear itself. Works only because we have fear as a noun and a verb. Hebrew can do it almost every time. And that's why translation is sometimes tricky. <coughs> so... They hurl him over, the sea calms for them, and they fear even more. What kind of God is this? The response is appropriate. Then Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he prays, Oh, Lord, you saved me. Now, we talked about how chapter 2 can be interpreted as he's really repenting. So, oh, good, he's, he's going to be obedient now. Or we can read chapter 2 as uncle, right? All right, I'll go. You saved me from the waters. Now I'm in the belly of the fish. At least I'm not dead, drowned. I'll go. And we, we kept going back and forth because the text can be read both ways. 
And I, I mentioned that some scholars will make a whole paper or a book commentaries about these issues, and, and I think they're missing the point. We're supposed to wonder. The, the text is ambiguous so that we think, is he repenting? Is he not? Is he? Is he not? Sounds like it. Nope, doesn't. Oh, yep, it does. Nope, doesn't. So that when we get to chapter 3, we don't really know what's going on in Jonah's head. Because remember, Jonah is the lens through which we look at the whole of this book. So we don't know what's in Jonah's head. So he does go into to Nineveh, preaches five words of prophecy, which lacks the main thrust. Do you remember the main thrust of prophetic voice? Turn and repent. He doesn't say any of those things. In fact, you find those words, turn and repent, in the mouth of the Ninevite king who says, hey, we should turn and repent, and maybe God will turn and repent. Do you remember that? That was in chapter 3. So Ninevites repent greatly. The extent of Ninevite repentance is so great that God sees this, and God repents. Now, we talked about how that repentance can be tricky, uh, theologically especially. Divine repentance is a hard one. How can God change? Because repentance is about change, both emotional and volitional, the will and the, and the affect, or you, your emotional life. And so how can God change? Now, that's for the theologians to figure out. <laughs> but my, my take on the Old Testament is this. Um, we, we come up with these categories, like immutability of God, that God never changes. That's a theological category. It's a theological construct. But when you read the text, when you read the Bible, God seems to change all the time. In fact, God changes so much. There's, there's a book called The Most Moved Mover, play on the Aristotelian idea of the unmoved mover. So Aristotle said there's an unmoved mover. Okay, that might be God. Well, the Christian God that we have is the most moved mover. But God is moved by, not by some external um, manipulation. God is moved by God's own character, and that's what we're going to read today. Uh, before we get to chapter 4, could we have four volunteers uh, to read just these four passages? Could we get some volunteers? Could you read uh, Exodus, Exodus uh, 34, 6? Would you read the next, uh, the, the Psalm 103.8? And we're, gonna, we're, we're going kind of in the order of uh, most likely the earliest recorded and to later. Uh, and then uh, Nehemiah 9.17, someone? Anyone? Nehemiah 9.17. And Joel 2.13. Joel 2.13, okay. This is, by the way, the background to this. Remember Moses shatters the, the Ten Commandments because it's because of the rebellion of the people. And this is the second time that God is going to write the stones. And this is about to happen, and this is the moment. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you. Uh, Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Amen. Nehemiah 9.17 is a little longer. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sleep. We can, we can go Joel 2.13 first, if you like. We can come back to Nehemiah. So rent your heart garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Are we at Nehemiah 917 yet? Yeah, we're coming. <laughs> <coughs> Long verse. There we go. Okay. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. 
that enough? Yes. Now, I can tell that the versions were different, but do you see the pattern? This is the only creed that we find in the Old Testament, a creed, a statement of belief about who God is, repeated over and over. And we see several times in the Bible, we could, we could have read from Numbers uh, in Ezekiel, we find it in every part of the Old Testament. So the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings, as the psalmist said. So if you ever think, hey, does the Bible ever, ever have a creed? That's the only one. And this creed says God is uh, gracious, merciful. Do you know the difference between these two? Uh, I, used to get, I used to confuse those two. Grace is not, grace is getting what you don't deserve. We know that, right? The free gift. Uh, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Um, mercy, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You follow that? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So I, I once said, uh, this was kind of a facetious example, uh, if, a, if a police officer pulls you over, uh, mercy is not getting a ticket. Grace is him giving you his donut. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry if I offended any police officers in the room. Uh, so that was a good illustration I've heard. It's kind of you know, facetious, but... So there's a difference, right? Grace and mercy, gracious, merciful. Slow to become angry. I've talked about this before. The ech afayim in Hebrew means literally long of nostrils. And we talked about how nostril, burning nostrils is when you're angry. When you're breathing heavy and you're angry. But if, you're, if your nostrils are really long, you can slowly calm yourself and you're slow to become angry. It's a very interesting idiom. But slow to become angry fits well because if you translate it long of nostrils, it really wouldn't make any sense to the English audience. So slow to become angry, or patient might be a better translation of that. And then abounding in chesed, full of chesed. Uh, we learned that word, chesed. Chesed is that untranslatable word that means love in a faithful, loving, kind way. That's why some translations will invent a new word, loving kindness, and put it into a new word. Um, it's a very difficult word to translate into English. But it means faithfulness, it means loyalty, it means kindness. Uh, what Boaz does to Ruth is described as chesed. Often applied to God. And chesed is something that flows downward. So uh, when you provide for the poor, it's chesed. But it's also chesed in the sense that I have a covenant with my wife. And my faithfulness is chesed. So it's, it's a very complex word. But part of... All of this is really included in this word. It's a big umbrella word. And then uh, we talked about last time repentance, nacham, nacham meaning to repent, feel sorry for, grieve, uh, as well as changing your mind. <coughs> Excuse me. And you, f and, and you see this in Joel 2.13, word for word, uh, what we will find in Jonah. Now, Jonah is depicted as the prophet. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitai. It's a prophetic formula. That, that Devar, Donah, El, Yonah, El, whatever, that whoever that is, that's a formula that says, hey, God is speaking to a prophet. So Jonah is a prophet. As 2 Kings 14, I think uh, verse 25 around there, Jonah is mentioned. That's the only other time Jonah is mentioned as a prophet. And so Jonah is described as a prophet. And of course, if he is a prophet, he would know the creed, the only creed that the Old Testament ever had. So let's start in chapter 4. So uh, if you will get to Jonah 1, I mean Jonah 4, uh, verse 1, please. It begins right off the bat with that, you know how the verb and noun the idea, <coughs> the verb noun, like fear, fear, you can love, love. Uh, you can record a recording. You can record a record. But in, in Hebrew here is a phrase that works that way. In English, it has to be translated some other way because we don't have this one. It says in, in, in verse 1, <coughs> uh, your English translation will, will say something like, and it greatly displeased Jonah. 
Something like that, doesn't it? Uh, in Hebrew, it, re it reads literally like this. A great evil, eviled Jonah. You know how you can love love? Imagine if the word evil, ra'ah, did we, yeah, we learned this word, ra'ah. Imagine if that word evil can be a verb. You can evil something. If, if, you, if that was a verb, you can evil evil. So this great evil ra'ah gadol, gadol ra'ah, ra'ah Jonah. It's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? For, for <coughs> English readers, it sounds strange. But it just means that it was a great evil to Jonah. And he was angry. I'm sorry, is that me? Oh, that was me, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure what that was. Uh, mine's on vibrate. Ah, it must be an alarm. Alarms go through the vibrate, I heard. Uh, so it was great evil to Jonah, and he, he, it was burning to him. He was really, really angry. Strange phrase, but we learned very beginning. Uh, when God says, get up and go to Nineveh, this great city, why? Do you remember why? Sorry? Because of their evil, right? It says, it says literally their evil, their ra'ah has come up before my, before my face. They've come up to me, so I can't ignore this anymore, so go. So this ra'ah comes to, to, to God. And we're going we're gonna to get a conclusion of this ra'ah in chapter 4. Uh, the only person ra'ah relates to in chapter 4 is Jonah now. So this Jonah character uh, is experiencing this ra'ah. Uh, verse 2, and he prayed to Yahweh, or the Lord, and he said, this is an interesting, <laughs> it, it, it's a prayer, it's an interesting prayer. It says he prayed, but he says this, now please, Yahweh, I'm translating to Yahweh, because Lord, uh, in, in, in English and as well as the Hebrew word Adonai, is a sign of respect, right, Lord. Uh, we translate it that way, but it's simply a name. Okay, Yahweh is a name. Y-H-W-H, the four letters. So I'm going to translate it that way so you can hear what it might sound like. Um, the tone of, the, of his prayer. Now, Lord, or now, Yahweh, is this not what I said while I was still uh, upon my own land? Hallo, isn't this is this not? Now, you can, you can ask rhetorical questions two ways. You can ask in a positive or you can ask in a negative. Uh, so, for example, if you say, am I a good person? And I ask this sometimes of people, like especially my wife, you think I'm a good man? And she says yes. <laughs> but if I've done something good and I say, aren't I a good man? I'm already assuming that I am, aren't I? So when you ask in the negative, the rhetorical power of that is in the affirmative, not the other way around, right? Isn't this a great lesson? <laughs> so isn't this, is this not what I said? It literally says, were these not my words? Devar Adonai comes to Jonah, remember? Devar Adonai, it actually says, was this not my word while upon my own land? Therefore, Therefore, I fled in order to, and then here's the word, here's a new word we're learning today. It's this word. Kedem. Kedem. Q-E-D-Q-D-M. Kedem. In order to kedem, this thing, whatever this is, right? Now, what is kedem? How, how do your tr translations render this word? In order to do what? Forestall. Forestall? Any other? Sorry? Yeah, but why did he flee? He said, in order to, I fled because I wanted to <laughs> forestall. Is that the only one? Literally means in front of. Kedem means in front of. 
And uh, this one, it takes that word in front of and turns it into a verb. Remember, remember Hebrew can do that? Nouns and verbs and adjectives to verbs. You can, it can make a verb out of it, pretty much anything. So in order to forestall, I fled to Tarshish. This means in front of. Uh, the verbal form here is in the PL, which means it's uh, iterative. So imagine this. Imagine you're trying to get by me, and I stand in front of you. And you step, you step aside to go around you, and I step in front of you again. And you go the, the other way, I step in front of you. I'm always in front of you. I keep blocking you. That's literally this word. I'm going to be in front of you over and over and over. So forestall has, has that idea, I suppose, but hinder, block. I think of like a defensive lineman or something, right? You gotta block. He's trying to block God. I'm gonna be in front of you. Now this word sometimes means east. Uh, in, in, the, in, in the ancient world, east was front. In fact, uh, if you look at the, in the oldest maps, what we think of north is typically east. It's, and even the idea, uh, orientation. Orientation, the word orient is, e is east. So if you're orienting something, you're facing east. You're finding out where east is first, so you can orient yourself. In fact, orient means east, right? Like oriental, orient. Uh, so east means front. So this word can mean east only because they, th they think of east as being in front of them. Uh, but it doesn't really mean east to begin with. It means in front. So I, I fled because I wanted to hinder you, block you. And then there's an interesting confession after that. Because I knew. Because I knew that Atah, you are a God, gracious, merciful, long of nostrils, abounding in chesed, and relenting over evil. How does he know this? It's a creed. First said by God in, in Exodus 34, uh, in the second recording of the Ten Commandments. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, Lord God. Imagine this. This prophet who knows this very quality, these attributes of who God is, says, I know this God to be gracious and merciful, long-suffering or slow to become angry, abounding in this very loving, kind, merciful nature, and always changing his mind about doing evil things. So what, is he, what does he actually want then? He wants the Ra'ah to be doled out to the Ninevites, and that's why he fled, because God is too gracious and merciful and long-suffering. So if he goes and preaches, he knew there was a good chance that God is going to change his mind about what, what the outcome would change, right? So he thought, all right, if I can just not do this, and forestall has an almost idea of delaying, but it's not delaying. He wanted to prevent this from happening. He wanted to block the whole way so that eventually God would just destroy the Ninevites. Background information. I think someone said this uh, a couple weeks ago. The Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire at this time. And Nin uh, the Assyrians were the major superpower of the Mesopotamian world at this time. So you got Egypt on one side, and you got the Mesopotamian Empire on the other side throughout almost the entirety of the Old Testament history. And the, well, Egypt is always Egypt. Well, there's a time the Nubians come in and rule there for a while. Uh, but Egypt is ruled by Egyptians. But the Mesopotamian world is sometimes ruled by Akkadians, sometimes Sumerians, sometimes Babylonians. The old Babylonians, you think of Hammurabi and his law a law code of Hammurabi. So you've got all kinds of people ruling that region constantly in flux. And, and during this time, uh, 7th century BC, you got the Assyrians ruling that, that region, and the capital was Nineveh. And the Assyrians were not good people. Uh, what I mean by good people is when they conquered a nation, um, they, they were not like the Romans. You know, I think of Romans as enemies of, of the gospel, but... Uh, um, Excuse me, I'm not sure what's going on there. Oh, it is an alarm, I'm sorry. 
we'll turn it off. Uh, the Romans, there was, you know that phrase, Pax Romana, peace of Rome? Because after you, they conquered you, they provided services, right? They built roads, and they provided other services that the empire was able to offer. Assyrians were not like that. The Assyrians, when they conquered you, they transplanted you all over their empire. They just uprooted you from your family and moved you to another strange land and had you assimilate. So uh, later on, the Babylonians will do something we, we'll call the exile. What the Babylonians did later, uh, remember when Daniel goes to Babylon and these stories of Babylonian exile, what they did was they wanted to make their capital city, Babylon, the greatest. So what they did was they took the elite people like Daniel and Nehemiah and those the reason those people exist in, in those high positions because they were in use. They were put to use. They exiled the elite from other nations that they conquered, brought them into Babylon so they can make Babylon great. Another way to control your empire is to weaken everybody else, and that's what the Syrians focused on. In order to prevent revolts from happening from their empire, they transplanted people all over so that you wouldn't have a people group. It would destroy any kind of culture and harmony and unity within any, any specific culture and group. And think about this. Remember how the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom existed for a while separately? And when the southern kingdom falls, it falls to Assyria. The, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. southern kingdom falls to, to Babylon later on. The northern kingdom, they transplant these people and they bring people in because they're transplanting. And you get these people in the north, they're no longer called Samaritans or Israelites, they're called Samaritans by the time Jesus arrives. The reason the Jews hated them so much, the Judean, the southerners hated them so much was because they weren't really Jews ethnically, right? They were mixed people, a kind of a mongrel race that they thought it was impure and so they didn't associate with the Samaritans. But imagine this. It wasn't their fault, was it? The Assyrians did this. They were just a byproduct of that policy, that foreign policy that Assyria had. And no wonder our Lord Jesus Christ was so compassionate toward these people. It wasn't their fault. Now the Assyrians, in, in addition to those policies, they had atrocious war uh, laws. I mean, we get pretty upset when, when laws are conducted in a way that we would call terrorism, right? Uh, especially when women and children are involved and when civilians are involved. Assyrians had no such qualms. Whatever got the job done. So they were brutal people, militaristically as well. So they're seen as oppressive superpowers. And so for the Israelites, who are really tiny at this time, they're not experiencing the Solomonic glory of the 9th century. By the time you get to 7th and 6th century, it's, they're really kind of a vassal state, a small state. So for an Israelite at this time, to be angry toward Ninevites would have been very natural. And so for God to show grace and mercy and patience and loyal love and not do the evil, the ra'ah, the, the calamity that, that God said God would. This is not what Jonah or any Israelite would really, really would have wanted. So you, so you find this beautiful creed sarca almost sarcastically thrown back at God. Isn't this what I said? I told you, when we start looking through the lens of Jonah, things look, start to look ugly especially when we put ourselves in, that, in those shoes. Um. Once heard a, uh, I, I spent most of my adult life in Texas, so don't hold that against me. Uh, <laughs> my father was in the US Army, so we moved around a lot, and he was stationed in San Antonio for a long time, and then I went to Dallas Seminary, so I spent 12 years in Dallas and four years in San Antonio. And, but there were lots of good southern preachers there. Um, and, and there were some really bad ones. <laughs> and I remember hearing this one bad southern preacher one time. 
Uh, he was talking about good hellfire and brimstone kind of sermon, which I don't mind. If that's your shtick, uh, if that's all you've got to compel people to come to love our Lord is fear, that's your best message, go for it. I'd rather draw you from the love of Christ and the power of the gospel and the, inc- the inclusion and embrace of our Lord. But if you want to say, buy fire insurance, uh, <laughs> go for it. But I heard, I, but he said it in such a way that he was gloating about the people going to hell. Just, those people deserve to go to hell. And I, and I sat there for a bit thinking, what would our Lord think about this sermon if he was sitting here? Boy, you know, there were, there were times that Jesus got upset. Remember the temple clean, clean, cleaning? Yeah, there were times that he got upset. But I remember the last words of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Someone killing you and you're saying, Father, forgive them. Uh, and remember, Jesus is the one who said, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And he doesn't mean this prophet. He means the message. Let's keep reading, because it gets worse. (laughs) Verse 3. And now, Lord, or Yahweh, take my life from me, because... My death is better than my life. In a way, in a sense, it is, Jonah is saying, okay, it's either me or them. Take my life. If this is what you want to do, take my life. It's me or them. And he, he might think that he, might, he, he, he had convinced Yahweh here. Because look what happens in verse 4. God says, uh, <coughs> Yahweh says, is it good? Is it right? Uh, he, there's another word that, uh, it's a verb. It comes from the word good. It, they, they, they verbalize the word good. Tov, to yatav. So it means, are you gooding? To be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Notice, uh, immediately following, he does not answer. Jonah does not answer that question. He goes out. So Jonah went out from the city, and he sat east. All right? East? We learned that word, didn't we? Kedem. East of the city. <coughs> and he made for himself a sukkah. A, uh, we have a, the Feast of Sukkot. Uh, booths. He made for himself a booth, and he sat under its shade to see, or until he could see, what would become of the city. Why would he do that? He thinks he might have convinced Yahweh. It's my life or theirs. Certainly he would preserve my life. Certainly he would kill those Ninevites. So he's, he's going to go out and watch uh, the phrase there, Adashir, is literally until that which he could see what would happen to the city. So he's, he's expecting something. He's not just out there wondering, oh, maybe something will happen, maybe something won't. He's actually expecting something to happen. And we know what he wants. Then the Lord appoints, appointed <coughs> a kikayon. We've had lots of gadols, gadol, 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 great, 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 great. What we haven't had is a diminutive. This is the first one. Kuk or kik is a plant. Kikayon is a planty, like a little tiny plant. Uh, we think of diminutive as, for example, I have a son whose name is Thomas. He likes Thomas, not Tommy. Tommy, he's 12, so he's you know, maturing, and he doesn't want to be called Tommy because he sounds kiddish, he says. So we, we, we tend to use those E's as a diminutive. So Thomas becomes Tommy, uh, Davy instead of David. This is a planty. It's not even a full plant. 
Akikayon. Yon, own is a uh, own is a diminutive ending. Uh, remember in Book of Ruth, you got Machlon and Kilion, the sons of Elimelech and Naomi. Those are kids' names. And by the way, those names mean sickly and weakly, and they die. <laughs> Machlon and Kilion mean sickly and weakly, and they die. Ruth is filled with name plays like that. But here we get Kikayon, a little plant. So the Lord appoints a little plant to grow over, uh, to come up over Jonah, to be shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. Ra'ah. From his evil. Now, I don't know how to translate this into English, right? Because it means evil. I would rather just follow the King James example on this one and just call it evil. Deliver him from his evil. What he's doing is not a good thing. This isn't simply just about his discomfort. It's, there's a moral element to this accusation. But how does the shade deliver him from his evil? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Until you keep reading. <clears throat> so he's in front of the city, Kedem, east of the city. So God raises, uh, God appoints a, a, remember God appointed a fish before? That's the same word, mana. God appointed a fish. Now God appoints a, a kikayon, a little tiny plant to grow over, to, to deliver him from his discomfort or his ra'ah. And then we get another gadol here. Uh, and another uh, verb plus the noun that's exactly the same, you know, like uh, fear, fear. Here we have rejoice, rejoicing. And that kind of works. Rejoice, rejoicing. So, the, so Jonah rejoiced over the kikayon, the little tiny plant, a great rejoicing. He's really, really, really happy about this. Okay? So, so the first time in the story, we got somebody being happy. I, I mean, the, the sailors were going to die. The, the Ninevites were going to die. Nobody's been happy to this point. Jonah hadn't been happy. God certainly hadn't been happy. And now for the first time, we got Jonah being, oh, okay, I'm really happy now. <laughs> I, I am simcha, a simcha gadol. So simcha, samach, samach, uh, to rejoice. And then simcha is the same word in the noun form. A great rejoicing he rejoices. Over what? A plant. Interesting. Okay, let's keep reading. <clears throat> so he, great, he greatly rejoices over the plant. So the Lord appoints, again, Mana appoints a worm, a tola'at, a worm, in the coming up of the dawn. So right before, right before sun, sunshine, sunlight, uh, in the coming up of the dawn the next day, the Lord appoints a, a worm. And it attacks, it strikes. Nacha uh, there, King James, smite, right? It attacks the kikayon. And the kikayon withers or dries up. That's not going to turn out well, is it? And when the sun was shining, God appoints a ruach, ruach means wind, a wind kadim, an east wind. You wanted to block me? You wanted to be in front of me? Let me use that. You sit, you sit in front of the city, I'm going to send you a kadim wind and see how you like it. God sends a uh, kedem wind, an east wind. And what happens? It attacks. The sun attacks. Everything is attacking him. Where is it attacking? His head. So he starts to feel faint. So you can imagine, uh, if you're in Syria right now, uh, that would be what, northern Iraq? Kind of where that is. And you're, you're under, a, you were under a tr tree, nice shade. That's gone. The sun's beaming down on you, and now there's a scorching east wind. So what does he do? 
he asks his soul to die. Uh, the word sha'al there is a strange word. Sha'al means to ask for, like inquire or request. Uh, the, the word that you might be most familiar with is Saul. When people ask for a king, they sha'al. So what do they get? They get a sha'ul. They get a Saul, the one asked for. Uh, it's an interesting turn of phrase there. They, they ask for a king, so they get a king named asked for. <laughs> he asks for his life. So he's talking to his nefesh, his soul. He's talking to his neck, his throat, his life to die. And he says again, it is better for me to die than to live. Literally, again, my life, uh, my death is better than my life. And God says to Jonah, again, the same question. Are you gooding? Is it good for you? Is it right for you to become this, to be this angry? Over a kikayon? A little plant? And he says, and he said, it is good for me to be angry ad mavet, to death. It is absolutely right. Is, I am absolutely in the right here. You're wrong. I could die for this. This is worth dying for. This is how right I am, how sure I am. <clears throat> and then we've been building up to this, this point. Um, verse 10. 10 is going to be the, the 10 and 11 really captures everything that's been going on and linguistically and theologically. So he would rather die than to live. We knew this. He fled. And when the ship was going to sink, he didn't even say anything. And then when they figured out, when the men, fig you know, the sailors figured out that it was Jonah's fault, he said, yeah, throw me overboard and it'll be calm for you. He really would have rather died than to see the Ninevites forgiven. God having shown grace and mercy and patience and kind, loyal love to the Ninevites. So this is not at all surprising from Jonah. What's surprising is what God says here. Then Yahweh said, you, there's an emphatic there, atah, you, had chesed, this word. Chesed has a verbal uh, equivalent, and it, what, what it does is it becomes chus. And so, just like fear, fear, and evil, evil, and rejoice, rejoice. Uh, the word chesed can have that verbal, verbal sense. And it, it then, in the verbal sense, it emphasizes kind of that gracious concern. So you care for something. Um, so you had concern, care. Uh, how, how does your version render that about the plant? Pity, okay. I like that. You had pity. Um, I, I think the, most, the closest we have in English is care. Because we can think of the word care in, in several different ways. When you care about something or someone or care for someone, uh, you can also take the word and, and use it um, in a way that is almost neutral. So if my son, when he gets upset about something and he's talking to, to us and we ask him a question and if he's upset, his favorite phrase is, I don't care. <laughs> you want to eat dinner? I don't care. What do you want for dinner? I don't care. It means he's, he's angry. But he's using the word care to, to, to in that very neutral sense. He's not caring for, concerned for. So I don't think Jonah here was feeling like some sort of compassion for the plant. What he cared about was that it supplied shade, right? So he cared about it in a, in a very selfish way. Now, what God is saying, so you cared about this thing. Why did you care about a little plant, a planty, a kikayon? And then uh, there's a relative clause. So uh, it, it starts to describe kikayon. So God says, you cared about the kikayon, that which, the relative clause begins there, asher, which, for, for which you did not toil, labor. 
Uh, amal is often used of like working the soil. In other words, you didn't harvest this. You didn't grow this. You didn't work for it. And then also that you did not, what's the word there for you? So you did not work for and you did not make it grow. If there's ever been anything, a, a, a pinpoint in my life that really God used to change the direction of my, my life was that word, one word. But I'll come back to that. You did not make it grow. And it was a son of a knight and a son of a knight perished. Uh, that's what, what it literally says. But he came up one night and died the next night. But the word there is not die. It says perish. Mavet, mat, what he's been saying, it's better for me to die, I'd rather die. The word die or death is a very common word, but it uses a uh, less common word, perish, avad. The last time we saw this was in the mouth of the Ninevite king. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and he will not let us perish. We also saw that in the sailors. Don't let us perish on account of this man's innocent blood. <coughs> Strange turn of phrase for a plant. But you cared about this plant? That which you did not work for, and that which you did not, this word, grow? And it just came up overnight and died the next night. It perished. The word there, grow, a doll. It's in the verbal form of gadol. Gadol, great. Means to make great. The reason this stood out to me when I first read Jonah in the seminary is because there's a perfectly acceptable word that means to cause to grow, make grow. In fact, it's a very, very common word, tamach. And tamach you find it in Genesis, for example, when God caused plants to grow. So that would have been the most natural word to use. You did not cause this thing to grow. You did not raise this. You did not grow this. But yet we find the word gadal. This was a powerful moment for me in seminary. This was my uh, second semester of Hebrew. And I thought, why is it there? We've seen gadal only as an adjective so far, all of it, right? Men feared a great fear. God throws a great storm. Jonah rejoices a great rejoicing. All these gadols. And then we find one occurrence of this gadal, gadal as a, as a verb. This makes so much more sense when we read the next verse then. Verse 11. So the emphasis on the previous verse was you, ata, you. Now the emphasis is me, I, v'ani. But I, shall I not, chus, have compassion over Nineveh, ha'ir ha'gadolad, the city, the great city, in which there are 120,000 adam. Adam. Uh, it uses the word Adam, uh, Adam. That's where we get the word Adam. It doesn't use the word men there. It uses Adam. Ish, Ish, Anashim would have been easy there. But it uses Adam because Adam focuses, the, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word that focuses on one's mortality. It's our finite humanness. There are 120,000 lives in this city who do not know their right from their left, and many animals. We saw beginning with great city, this great city. Now we know how big it is. 120,000 people Jonah would have liked to have seen dead. And God says, you cared about a plant that you didn't grow and you didn't work for. Implication? I made this city gadol. I gidailed this city. I'm responsible. 
I mean, we know theologically this to be true now in Christian theology. Of course, God is sovereign over every nation. Of course, God is sovereign over every city, not just Bethlehem, not just Jerusalem, not just Samaria. God is the God of all nations, and we know this, and Jonah should have known this too. When God says, you didn't amal, you didn't toil for this, and you didn't gadal this, I did. So should I not have compassion on 120,000 people who's acting out of ignorance? That's why I sent you. Now you, when you go back and read chapter 3, of course they respond this way because they weren't rebellious for being uh, f- on purpose. They were acting evil because they didn't know. They didn't know their right hand from their left hand, let alone what is right and what is wrong. And now, by the way, that knowing from right from left is often used in the moral sense in the Old Testament. They don't know what is good and what is bad. Who knew? Jonah did. Throughout, throughout the book, there, there are, uh, the word yada, to know, occurs, occurs often as well. I wish we had time to trace that one too. But, uh, for example, Jonah, Jonah, when he was in the ship, the men knew that he, had, he was fleeing from this Yahweh. They didn't know who this Yahweh was until he tells them, oh, yeah, Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth, created the sea out of the dry land that you want to get to, and we're in the middle of the sea. That's Yahweh, and they fear, right? And then they throw uh, Jonah overboard. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and the king of Nineveh says, oh, who knows? Yada, me yodea, who knows? We know who knows. Yo- Jonah knows. And then Jonah just said, for I knew you are an ale. You are a God, compassionate, grace, gracious, compassionate, slow to become angry, abounding in chesed, and always changing your mind about the judgment that you, was, you say you're going to do. Jonah knew. And then at the end of the book, we, we, we find out that Ninevites don't know anything. And if you ever had any doubt about whether God cared about animals, I mean, think about this. God is saying, not only are there are 120,000 people there, there are animals there that you want destroyed. Overturned, hafach in the Hebrew there, in 40, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. It's the absolute destruction of everything. And that was in God's right to do so. That, that would have been just ju- judgment. But with God isn't what you don't see here, by the way, in the attribute of the creeds. What, what don't you see in this list that we commonly refer to in the, about who God, our God is? Judge. Just. The only creed that we have in the Old Testament does not include the justice of God. In fact, because God will violate a sense of justice for the sake of grace and mercy. That is our God, by the way. Uh, this is, this is the, the deliverance message, the salvation message of Jonah. This is where it all built up to. So when, God, when Jesus says, I will give you the sign of Jonah, he's not simply saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to be in the belly of the fish and come out. Of course, there's that metaphorical belly of the fish, the tomb and coming out. There is that too. But what Jesus is really saying is this. Do you remember the point of Jonah? And, and to his audience, they would all know the point of Jonah. Because they, w- they would have read it as a child. They would have read it growing up. And they would know that Jonah was about God delivering not just Israelites, but everyone outside that. Enemies. God delivering the enemies of Israel. When Jesus says, love your enemy, they're thinking of those people. They're not really thinking about your neighbor who you can't stand. Uh, their, Their categories for enemies were very solid. Romans, they would have thought at that time. Love your enemy. I will give the sign of Jonah. You think of justice, and, and Paul will say, we all deserve death. The wage of sin is death. But God, chesed, God's uh, grace, loyal kindness, mercy, will cause God to change and not cause us to experience the ra'ah of God but really his mercies. Think about this. That's a, it's a single book in an Old Testament narrative called Jonah that you find this beautiful story about God's concern for the enemies of Israel 
and the effort that God goes through to deliver them, to save them, rescue them. And the one person that we're looking through, Jonah, does not want this. By the way, this also reflects the Israelite attitudes at that time, right? Yahweh is our God. Okay, you guys have Marduk. You guys have Can- uh, you Canaanites have Baal. We have Yahweh. He just happens to be greater. Yahweh's better than your gods. But you can't have our God. And you go back to Genesis 12 when, uh, when the Abrahamic covenant was instituted. You will be a blessing to every family, every nation on earth. And they forget that. Right? They build hedges around themselves. This is us. This is our God, our blessings. The blessings of Abraham were meant to be for the whole world. And they hog it, right? They don't they hoard the blessings of God. And what God does is break that wall through Christ. In Jonah, we get one kind of anger. Uh, it's unjustified anger. That's why God keeps asking, is it good for you to be angry? Are you right to be angry? Are you gooding? Tov means good. Are you yatav? Are you in the right? Are you good to experience this anger? And the implied answer is, of course not. Jonah's not in the right. But here's the other flip side. Uh, in the book of Job, I just recently pub- published an article on this one. This is fascinating stuff on Job. Job, in the very beginning of the story of Job, uh, his wife says, because he's, you know, afflicted and he's in pain, so he, his wife says, and this is not an exaggeration, he, he just says, curse God and die. When I say that, some students who have not read Job think that I'm, like, making a funny line. I curse God and die already. Uh, no, she actually says that to her husband because she can't bear to see her husband suffering like this. So she thinks, yeah, if you curse God, you can just die. I don't know if she means curse God and God will kill you, or curse God and then kill yourself. I don't know which one she means, but she says curse God and die. Job 3 begins, let there be darkness. Whoa. Yahi or, let there be light, was how God begins. Job begins, let there be darkness. Let the day of my conception be hidden under a dark cloud. And then if that can't happen, if I can't erase the day of my conception, may I have died as a stillborn child. And then what he ends up doing in Job 3, when you look at the, the whole chapter, he basically undoes creation. He wants to undo creation in a reverse order. And then uh, when, when Eliphaz starts to speak, he says, Job, come on, be patient, and, and, you know, examine your life. Maybe you've sinned something, and maybe that's what you're suffering. And Job goes, to, Job comes back, I'm not, I haven't sinned. I don't deserve this. I'm innocent in all this. And we know that's true, because God had said in the beginning to Hasatan, the adversary, have you considered my servant Job blameless, upright, turning away from evil? There's no one, no one like him on earth. God is so proud the wage begins, the wager between God and the Satan begins because God says, this man is innocent. He's like the best ever. So we know that to be true. So when Job says, I'm innocent, we, know, we don't have to Im- impose Calvinistic, you know, depravity ideas onto that in the story. We don't have to say, well, of course we're all sinful, but that's not the point of the story. The story is Job's innocent. He doesn't deserve this. And then back and forth, it gets worse. So there are three friends of Job. 
uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they progressively get worse and start attacking Job. And by the third cycle of that conversation, Job is now upset with his friends and saying, what are you talking about? Right? And then he starts accusing God of injustice. God, you are not just. A just God would not do this. And you're a bully because you refuse to show up. I'm, I am accusing you. In fact, I am writing up an indictment. I am suing you. There's a legal metaphor in that. I am suing you, but you don't show up for your arraignment. But if you ever did show up, you would crush me because you're God. So Job is accusing God of not just being unjust, a coward, but a bully who shows up and will just crush him because he has nothing good to say. Right? He can't defend himself, so um, he's going to crush me. And then Job uh, 38, God starts to speak. And the paper I wrote was basically that we misunderstand Job 38 to mean that God is angry with Job and blustering at Job, but we miss the point. When you actually read that text carefully, God is treating Job like a man, like a gabor, a warrior man. Gird up your loins means take the robe, put it in your belt, because you're about to, I want to treat you like a gabor, a man, a warrior who's got, who has to move fast. So they wore these long robes, right? So if you're going to battle, you took the part of your robe and tucked it under so it makes kind of a pant leg kind of thing so you can run faster and fight. So he's saying, I'm going to treat you like a man. And then what, what does God do throughout that passage? Speaks to one mortal person, the infinite, powerful creator God, who talks about that aspect of God's attribute says, I'm going to spend this time to talk to one person. And then at the end of that cycle, he says to Eliphaz, the chief, the head among the three friends, he says, okay, I am angry with you. What? Wait a minute. Eliphaz didn't do anything wrong. It was Bildad and Zophar who messed up. Eliphaz is wise. He's very wise. In fact, Paul will cite Eliphaz, <coughs> Paul in, in Corinthians will cite Eliphaz and say, that's scripture. Eliphaz said nothing wrong, but God says, I am angry with you because you did not speak rightly. My servant Job has. No, go ask my servant Job to offer a sacrifice for you on your behalf, and then I'll forgive you. Boom. My head blew off, right? He's just like, what? He, he, Job comes that close to cursing God. That close. He curses God's creation and everything about God. Just doesn't curse God directly. And yet, God says to Eliphaz, my servant Job spoke rightly. And what does that mean? And, and, and my argument, and I think I can, I, you can see this, when you're, when you're in the right to, when you're suffering and you're angry with God and you allow that anger to come forth, I think that's right to speak. So when Jonah is asked, are you right to, to be angry? I think that's impl that implies there, there are right times and right places to be angry. This ain't one of them. And in Jonah, it's not, but in Job, it is. In fact, we get the most beautiful poems of pain ever written in, jo in Job and God, <laughs> that's scripture. It's part of our scripture, these painful poetry, uh, poetry about pain and suffering. It's in, it's in our Bible. So there are times, I think, like if, you, if your pet dies and, and you feel anger and pain, it's okay to express that to God, I think. But, but notice that jo Job, because he's a person of faith, he oscillates. He goes back and forth in his, in his songs. So sometimes he'll be like, you're unjust, you're a bully, you're, and then he goes, but I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. That song is from Job. Right? So he oscillates back and forth, which is what a person of faith does. A person of faith, when he, when he or she's angry, he's like, oh, God, why? But I trust you. But I hate this. And, you know, you're any, I prayed and where were you? But I, I'm not going to let you go. Right? You're back and forth. I'll have, I'll have to think about that a bit. We're almost out of, we're, I think we're, we are, are we out of time? TC, this is, I just want you to know that so many people have come to me and expressed their love and appreciation for your Thank teaching. You. you are truly our friend. We love you. 
And I just got this feeling that maybe we should invite you back to teach Job <laughs> next year. <laughs> Thank you. The other, the other housekeeping issue, if you've ever had any burning desire to know more about, maybe Darwin, and is Darwin correct? Or is there intelligent design? John Guy will start next week a series that he's calling Sacred Science and Cells. So please come. Uh, we're not sure how many weeks it's going to be because of Thanksgiving. We may throw a free another week in there, or depending on the response, we may go six weeks on that. TC always, be well. Come back to us soon. Thank you. Lord bless you.